0: This is the Fighter Pilot Podcast, Episode 103. You know the drill. We're still in the midst of the Century Series, so that means this week we must be covering the F-103. So, But
1: uh, you didn't have an F-103. I'm sorry about that. It was a project for a Mach 3 capable plane, but it was way ahead of its time, and they only built a mock-up and never flew, so you can't talk about it.
0: Oh, well, hey, Bruce. So there's no such thing as an F-103? Nope. Well, then, what should we talk about instead?
1: Well, since you uh, were talking too much about your birthday party
0: in episode
1: uh, 100, let's uh, talk about the uh, uh, airplanes. Why don't you go back to the F-100 again?
2: I think that's a great idea, Jello.
0: Oh, hey, Boat.
2: I figured, you know what? I know an Air Force General that kind of lives pretty near me, and he flew F-100s in Vietnam. And since we didn't talk about the F-100 on episode 100, why don't we talk to him?
0: Well, sure. If you got a guy and he's a distinguished visitor, then let's kick it off with him. Yeah, let's do it. Okay, we got
3: combat F4 belly Strap in for the Fighter Pilot Podcast, the internet radio show that explores the fascinating world of air combat, the aircraft, the weapon systems, and most importantly the people. Now, here's your host, former U.S. Air Force F-16 pilot, Trevor Boswell.
2: Welcome, everybody. This is Boat on Location for today's episode at the Museum of Aviation at Robbins Air Force Base in Georgia. And as we continue our march through the century series, today we'll be discussing the North American-produced F-100 Super Sabre. And joining me to do that is very special guest, distinguished visitor, U.S. Air Force Major General Retired, Richard Goddard. Major General Goddard earned his bachelor's degree from the University of Utah and joined the U.S. Air Force at a distinguished graduate of officer training school in 1966. Over the course of his career, he commanded an F-111 squadron and two F-111 fighter wings, as well as the Director of Targeting and Weapon Application for the nation's nuclear war plan, the Director of Logistics for U.S. Air Forces in Europe, and Air Combat Command, all while amassing over 3,500 total flight hours and 227 combat sorties in the F-100. For his efforts, Major General Stoddard was awarded the Silver Star, Distinguished Flying Cross, and 12 Air Medals. Major General Goddard retired from active service after 34 years as a commander, Warner Robbins Air Logistics Center here at Robbins Air Force Base. It gives me a great pleasure to welcome to the show Major General Retired Richard Goddard. Sir, welcome.
4: Both well, thanks. It's great to be here, and anytime I get an opportunity to talk about airplanes, that's special. But to talk about the the F-100 Super Sabre, that's very special.
2: Absolutely. Yeah. Any any day we're talking about airplanes is always a good thing. And uh, I will say that that is a very impressive resume. I always marvel at how many jobs and opportunities there are out there within the Air Force and obviously around the world beyond that. But uh, you definitely got to experience a diverse group of them. And just to make sure I covered everything, what did I miss or is there anything else on your resume or your history uh, important to know?
4: No, I don't think you miss much. When people talk about your resume, it's of interest to some degree, but the thing that I like to say the most about my Air Force career is that I I don't believe I can remember a day I went to work that I didn't want to go there. I loved the United States Air Force. I loved the airplanes. I loved flying. Probably the most important thing is I loved working with the people we worked with, the men and women who worked so darn hard to get these airplanes airborne and to make sure that when I took off in that airplane, that it was ready to do its mission. I just think that's the, the most special thing that I can remember about my time in the Air Force.
2: That's awesome. I love it as well. Obviously, I'm uh, still in the reserves and actively participating in that way, but I can tell you that the people are the thing that make the difference in uh, wanting to continue to serve the mission, the airplane, everything is cool, and it's a great you know boilerplate for serving, but it's definitely the people that make all the difference in the world. So thank you for that. Well, in addition to uh, getting to speak with you and uh, hearing everything you're about to uh, tell us within your career and with the uh, F-100 itself, today is actually pretty special as well because of where we're located. Museum of Aviation here at uh, Robbins Air Force Base happens to also be the home of a very special aircraft. We're going to go take a look at it, I think, after we uh, discuss it here, but uh, specifically serial number or tail number 56-2995 was actually your aircraft in Vietnam, was it not? That's correct. Very cool. And does it have a name or is it just the tail number? Did you guys have one of those kind of things at that point?
4: No, we didn't use uh, names and things for our airplanes. Uh, 2995 or 995 is how I referred it to. Interestingly enough, when I got to Vietnam, uh, I was only there probably a week or so before my ops officer said, hey, here's your airplane. Go out and meet your crew chief. Yeah. So I was thrilled. Just the fact to get an airplane with my name on it was something else. But Uh, I went out there and uh, met the crew chief, and I said, chief, uh, where are you from? He said, sir, I'm from Ogden, Utah. And I said, chief, I'm from Ogden, Utah. (laughs) Both of us from the same hometown. Uh, I was a little bit older than he was, but we gelled and melded together wonderfully, and the fact that uh, I had him as my crew chief my entire tour was very special.
2: That's amazing. And do you guys still keep in contact to this day?
4: You know, I do. When we brought this airplane back home to Warner Robbins and uh, I contacted him, he still lives in Utah. His health is not good. He was not able to come out for the dedication of the airplane, Yep. but we sent him videos of that, tried to keep him as much in tune as he could because his name is on the side of the airplane too. That's great. And he was thrilled with that.
2: And we'll talk about the story of how the airplane came to be here at the museum as we get a little bit further on, but Let's definitely get through some of the specifics on the aircraft. And obviously, there's a lot of technical aspects that we can discuss. And you're intimately familiar with a bunch of those. You've got what we now call the Dash 1. You've got the flight manual there in front of you for uh, the specifics of it. It's looking a little thinner than what I know on the F-16. But you know maybe it's a little bit of a simpler time when it comes to aircraft technology. So,
4: Well, it is smaller. It's, I have a lot of time in the F-111. And I measured the two together. And this is about a quarter of the size. <laughs> so I, yeah, I know what you mean by the manual. But as I went through the manual, I noticed... My goodness, remember how you're supposed to remember all the warnings and cautions and so forth and, and everything committed to memory? I said, I didn't know I had the brain power to keep all that in my brain, but it's uh, there's a lot of stuff in
2: there. You know, They do always say that there's probably more things that you've forgotten than that you currently know, so we'll definitely cover all that. But as far as that's concerned, you ready to get started on this thing? Sure, let's go. The F-100 Super Saver, it's affectionately called the Hun. Uh, right is that right obviously a uh, direct correlation there to the uh, number 100 associated with it it's a century series vietnam era fighter can you talk me through any of the history behind the development the initial design request that kind of thing
4: well north american uh, obviously had built the f-86 and the uh, a very 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 great airplane during the korean war and so forth and they were looking to provide a follow-on to the f-86 and so they came to the government and said we're prepared to uh, offer uh, this new airplane, the new air- and they eventually become the F-100. It was uh, aircraft designed for multiple roles, air to air, air to ground. Okay, it was designed to be a nuclear airplane as well. So it uh, had many different functions as far as how they were offering it to the government. They went through a number of uh, mock-ups and tests, and uh, and came out with the airplane. Finally, and uh, began to deliver the Air Force in 1953. Yep. They had some interesting problems with the airplane early on, even before they got into the A model, the final design of the A model. Uh, And the A model was uh, a small buy that didn't have a B model. The C model was uh, built, and it was another quality airplane as far as the designs uh, it was supersonic, the first airplane to fly level supersonic. There was a great demand at the time for that capability. Obviously, sure. The D models, most produced airplane were the D models, they were very well upgraded as far as flaps. Uh, you didn't fly final at 165 knots; it was a little bit slower flying than final. That's nice of them, yeah, it's nice, etc. So uh, the fact that the airplane uh, was designed for that kind of a mission, swept wing was 45 degrees. The uh, F-86 was a 35-degree swept wing airplane. Wing sweep brought in a whole new world of, of flight characteristics and issues that we'll talk about. But that was the original plan for the airplane, and uh, it came into the air inventory at an interesting time, or after uh, Korea, and before Vietnam. So the airplane really shown itself for its full capabilities during the Vietnam era.
3: Yeah.
2: Okay. You talked about air-to-air, air-to-ground role, any other mission sets that it carried that you participated in? Or... Well, going through training, we did it all.
4: We've trained in each one of the missions, the nuclear mission, the air-to-air mission. Uh, we launched the AIM-9 against uh, targets. I had a chance to do all that stuff. But the, really, the airplane, it had a good air-to-air capability. Okay. But it was, uh, for its time, uh, began to, to not be adequate compared to the F-4 and, and that sort of thing. So as far as air-to-air, the airplane uh, did have one kill. In okay. Vietnam, but the Air Force never credited it for that kill because they couldn't substantiate it. Apparently,
2: sounds like a touchy subject.
4: Yeah, slightly. <laughs> I wasn't the driver, but uh, yeah, t- touchy subject. But uh, it did have a good air-to-air capability. It had a, a ranging sight, uh, and the sight was good for air-to-air. Uh, it did a lot of that during training. Fired a lot on the dart, which was an interesting proposition out sure. there shooting on a dart. But uh, it was a, a good air-to-air airplane for its time. But as it moved into Vietnam, it really wasn't the role for it.
2: And that was your first fighter aircraft, your first operational aircraft? I went into
4: the F-100 right out of pilot training.
2: In pilot training, were you T-38s? T-38s, Okay. And so any relative comparison you have between the two?
4: T-38 seemed small, tight, the 100 uh, bigger, more room in the cockpit. The day I stepped into that airplane, the first time I stepped into it, I said, boy, this is home. And, And it just felt natural. And learning all the things about the cockpit and all the switches and what they all did and so forth was, it was an amazing thing. But I found the F-100 to be an honest airplane, well-designed interior-wise uh, as far as the layout of the switches and all the components. But it was just a good airplane for its time.
2: So no host radar on it. You talked about the ranging site for uh, air-to-air employment. That was particular just really the gun and uh, IR missiles, infrared missiles?
4: yeah for the aim nine missile that was a easily targeting system for it didn't have much experience other than in training with that, but the role was air to ground, a very stable platform, both in dive bombing and in strafe a very very stable compared to the f four which is a higher wing loading airplane. I actually saw f four sent home during certain situations in Vietnam because they weren't able to do what the F wanted them to do so okay. and I know there's a lot of f four guys out there that say, Oh, you're so crazy <laughs> but in the defense of the F-100, it was a very stable platform for bombing.
2: Very good. As far, well, we'll jump right into it for the bombing side of the house. What was the armament that you guys would typically go uh, fly with?
4: Obviously, the most important to the, the fighter pilot part was the gun. Yep. We had uh, four 20-millimeter cannons in the nose. Each gun fired 1,500 rounds a minute, so that was a total of 6,000 rounds a minute you could fire with that airplane. Trouble was you only had ammo cans with 200 rounds per gun, so you, it it's was pretty quick. it was five-second bursts. Yeah. There were times when you just let it hose, but usually a five second burst, or I mean, a couple of second bursts was really all you needed for accuracy and a very, very accurate with strafe. And those 20 millimeter shells, when they hit the ground, uh, they were exploding shells and they were very, very impactful. I mean, they looked good when they hit. <laughs> you, you <laughs> it's, knew all, it's
2: all about looking good.
4: You, you, you knew you were getting something. <laughs> we flew with uh, gravity bombs, 500 pounders, 750 pounders, both slick and high drag, rockets, napalm, CBU, all weapons that had a particular mission that was very effective on uh, what you were trying to do. We, we also flew with 750 uh, extensions on the bombs, which was a fuse extension. It was about three feet out ahead of the bomb. Is that the daisy cutter? Daisy cutter. Yep. So when that bomb went off, it was above the ground, and, and you could create a landing zone right of, for helicopters almost sure. with the one pass.
2: And as far as where those were located on the airplanes, were those primarily under the wings or did you guys carry uh, anything? Everything under the wings. Everything under the wings. And then a single centerline fuel tank, external?
4: Didn't carry centerline fuel. External okay. fuel tanks on the wings.
2: Refueling capability. One of our listeners asked about what it was like to do it. It obviously could do it, but uh, what was your experience with that?
4: It was a good airplane for fueling. Or refueling the... Uh, Different kinds of airplanes, different ways. If you drogue airplanes, you fly up and you kind of poke it in and get your gas that way. If you're using the uh, the crew chief up, I mean, the refueling guy, if he's up there poking up there, you got to fly up there and fly off the lights, the flight director the direct system the underneath the airplane. Yeah. When you're probing drogue, you just fly up, use those lights as you're coming in, and then, then you got to just watch that and then plug it into the drogue. Now, the, the challenge about that is once you got into it, you had to lift it up a little bit and bend the hose. And so you weren't always pulling on it. It was a challenge for some. I didn't find it to be a totally problem. Nighttime became a little bit more of an issue just because of how dark it was. But not a bad plane to fly on a boom, except you did find time when you didn't have enough power you would find yourself almost being pulled a little bit, and that's when you'd ask the tanker to do a toboggan, Mm -hmm. which meant he'd just kick it over, kick off the other pilot, start down. And once you started down, you had enough additional power there to keep on the boom. And so we did that sometimes, not always, depending on what altitude we were and and what load we were carrying.
2: Yeah, that was my next question. What altitudes were you primarily starting to refuel at?
4: We were above 20,000. Okay. Yeah.
2: And you talked about the toboggan maneuver. Did aerial fueling change over the course of the war, or at least during your portion of the time within it?
4: Not really. The tankers, they were great. They did a great job of being where they needed to be, when they needed to be. If you were coming out and you needed gas bad, they'd find you. I give a great credit to the guys that flew the tankers over there because more than one guy got home because they were willing to do some extraordinary stuff to pick you up. For us, that would be coming back from Laos because those were the furthest missions we flew. Yeah. And we had to go uh, refuel going in. And every once in a while, because of circumstances, you may have to tap coming home.
2: Uh, William Wallace, one of our listeners, had asked about where they were typically located, the tankers, in relation to the target areas. Are they all behind the safe line, uh, if you will?
4: Yeah, they were always above in the south, okay. above uh, 20,000 feet. So they were a pretty safe area.
2: Very good. Do you know how far, usually from the target sets, that would put you guys?
4: Well, from Tuiwa into uh, Mugea Pass, and that was the real, real problem area because that's where the trucks were coming down the pass and into Laos and so forth. So from Tuiwa to Magia Pass, it's about 400 miles.
3: Oh, wow. Nautical
4: right. miles. So we would tap onto those guys about a couple hundred miles out. And right. so from the tanker on in, it was a couple hundred miles.
2: A little bit of a hike, I guess. Yep. Yeah. Switching gears, talking more some variants and whatnot. So you flew... Which variants of the F-100? The D model. The D model. And the F model. And the F model to follow on that. Uh, Did you do any of the reconnaissance versions or any of that? No. No?
4: Didn't know anything
2: about them. No. Okay. That was where I was going with that one. Good. So then uh, let's go into the D model. Anything unique or specific about the D model that's drastically different from the F? Or should we ask maybe the reverse direction of that question?
4: Let's start from the A model. Okay. Yeah. The A model had a smaller tail. And they began to find the flight characteristics needed to be worked on so that the changes were a a much larger tail, about 27% increase in the size of the tail. Oh, wow. The wings were extended out. Each wing was extended out a couple of feet. Okay. So that dealt keenly with the flight characteristics problems. That, That didn't do away with them, but it helped modify them. Sure. The D model had leading edge slats and flaps, which gave it a much better capability in low speeds and so forth. There are issues that we'll get into with uh, a couple of things about the airplane that were critical to be aware of as you flew it. Yeah. But the D model was an honest airplane, but it was uh, an airplane that would lead you down a very bad path if you weren't (laughs) careful. Sure. And it could be unpredictable.
2: I know when I went through pilot training, I flew T-38s, still the A model. Nothing really has changed in the what now, probably 60-plus years, 70 70 years that those things have been in existence. Coming around that final turn, if you got a little bit slow approaching the stall, you get the elephant feet on the wings is the way they describe it there as it's uh, looking to grasp at whatever air it possibly can. Similar kind of concepts for the the Sabre? Well, the
4: Sabre had major flight characteristic issue. In the final turn, if you see that you're overshooting and you try to load it up, that's critical.
2: Doesn't like that. Oh,
4: <laughs> It's got an adverse yaw problem and a, a, a roll coupling problem that if you abuse that, it's serious. And, and I can tell you a few people in Vietnam in the final turn did not survive because yep. they overloaded the airplane. And it's a rudder airplane. You fly the airplane with rudder. Now, in the T-38, you hardly touch the damn rudders, you yep. know? In the F-100, it was all rudders. You could turn it with rudders. The problem with the adverse yaw problem is you – you try to roll that airplane in and tighten it up a little bit in those big ailerons, and all of a sudden you have an odd, a yaw problem where the, the aircraft swaps to the other direction and at the same time pitches up. And if you're low to the ground and slow, and that leads into the, the saber dance, but uh, if you're slow and, and down to the ground, and you cannot abuse that airplane. You've got to get out of it, let it go. Do whatever you have to do, but do not keep that roll going because it'll take you out.
2: And we'll just jump right into it because, obviously, a lot of people have been asking. I think I got three or four different questions on it and uh, maybe a little bit of a nuance between each of them. But generally speaking, did you ever experience it yourself?
4: No. No, I didn't. I experienced uh, adverse yaw for sure and, okay. and the little roll coupling for sure. Okay. But never the, what happened in the saber dance. Well, let me, let me explain a little bit about the flight controls first of all. Sure. The flight control system is uh, – hydraulically actuated, but mechanically operated, for the stick is connected to actuation rods, which go out to a hydraulic valve, which then actuates the ailerons and the rudder. And so the pilot doesn't feel any loads from that system. There's no feedback as far as what that surface is doing out there. So the aircraft has artificial bungees, which give you artificial feel. And that's, that's common. Yeah, you, you couldn't really feel sometimes exactly what was going on because of that. It was called irreversible. Sure. But all that really means is there's a hydraulic valve out there between the stick and the, either the ailerons or the, or the rudder. So as you're flying the aircraft, and, and let's go right into the uh, saber dance, because that's an accident that should have never happened. Clearly, it shouldn't have happened for a couple of reasons. But uh, during the pre-flight, the pilot did not note that the uh, torque link on the on the nose gear was loose. All right. Or the pin was loose. And so uh, in the air, that pin came out. And the flight was from the, the plant. George Air Force Base was like a 10-minute flight or something like that. Just a short Pretty flight. Quick. Yeah. This was a delivery pilot. That was his job, delivering airplanes. He went through the pre-flight as normal but didn't catch that thing. So now he's airborne, and they're going into George. In the landing pattern, and the, uh, one of his uh, flight mates notes that, hey, you got a problem with your landing or your nose wheel gear. So he aborts that landing and, and decides to go over to Edwards because they got a longer runway, et cetera, et cetera. Smart. The trouble was he allowed the problem with that nose gear torque link to overpower some of his judgment. First of all, that airplane, if it lands, that nose is going to level out and go right on down the
2: runway. Was that pin just... For nozzle steering, essentially? Yeah,
4: yeah. The nose wheel might rotate a little, but when it hits the it's ground— It's free
2: castering, just that's like right. old or aircraft. That's yeah. right.
4: So the likelihood of having a problem with that was very small, but that was one of the things that got him into the situation he got into. I see. The interesting thing is that Edwards, they were just finishing up with some filming of uh, some other aircraft at Edwards, uh, and they did a lot of filming out there, obviously. And they heard they had an airplane coming in with an emergency, and so they swung their cameras around and thought, well, what the hell? We'll just go ahead and uh, take some pictures. And so, as he came in on his approach, they had foamed the, the runway, and the foam on the runway was not at the approach, right at the approach end, but partway down the runway. All right. For some reason in his mind, he felt he had to land at least where the foam was. His approach was set up to land at a normal landing spot on the runway. And as he, as he gets down to that air, that point, he begins to think, oh, I'm not going to make the foam. So instead of giving it a little bit of juice, he pulls the nose up a little bit. And what happens is you pull that nose up or just kind of rotate a little bit with a swept-wing airplane, the wingtips begin to stall first. Sure. As the wingtips begin to stall, the center of lift or the center of pressure, two different things actually, but it moves forward and causes a pitch-up. And so he got into that situation where he had gotten too slow. The nose was going up. He tried to counter it with aileron, not with rudder, but a- and, and as he rolled the airplane, that's where this adverse yaw kicks in. And so we watched the airplane doing this just back and forth. At some moment in time, he decides to go to afterburner, hits the afterburner, and what does that do? That kicks more nose up. And so now he is basically lost. Yeah. There's nowhere to go. He's fighting it back and forth, trying to use ailerons to correct it as it swings back and swings forth. He tried to use power to, to fly out of it. There was no way to fly out of it. And finally he lost it and, and hit the ground. So it's a, a characteristics of a adverse yaw, the characteristics of roll coupling, all those things came into play. And when those wingtips begin to stall, and like I said, as the wingtips stall, and the aircraft and in, in the center lift or the center of pressure both move forward. That causes the nose to come up, and as the aircraft begin to waver, and they tried to correct it with aileron, there was no recovery.
2: Yeah, it's kind of a lost cause at that point. Victor DeSanto, one of our listeners, asked if uh, was that something that would really only happen on approach, or is that something that you could have? It get could happen to, at or... higher
4: air speeds for sure. But the thing about roll coupling, it's kind of like if you think of a dumbbell with heavy ends at both ends. That's what the fuselage would be like. Heavy at one end and heavy at the other in the middle, not so much. And as you start to get roll coupling coming in, it all of a sudden can flip the aircraft almost sideways. Oh, wow. Completely sideways. And at high speeds, that could be disastrous. And it was disastrous. As a matter of fact, let me think. uh, In 1958, it was the worst year for the F-100. We lost 116 airplanes. In one year, 47 pilots, most of them to accidents. And I would venture to get, so I don't have all the specifics, but a vast majority of those were flight control kind of issues oh. and flying the airplane in the places it shouldn't be.
2: Yeah, and the flight flight regimes exactly. that it wasn't really designed to operate in. Yeah, it's always a danger. And as, as an instructor of younger folks, that's a key emphasis item. Would you say that that was primarily a younger person? less experienced pilots issue, or was it kind of widespread across the the age of experience?
4: I think younger pilots that haven't had a chance to uh, to understand all the intricacies of the airplane. Sure. And, and I would say that a lot of the senior guys also didn't understand it. Now, when I started flying the airplane, we had a history of accidents and what caused them, why they happened. As I started flying the 100 at Luke, I never met a single instructor or anybody else who had a even a remotely bad thing to say about the airplane. They just wanted you to know about the airplane. And this is how the airplane will take you into bad places. And so uh, I think the airplane was a problem for younger folks. But at the same time, they just didn't have the amount of data on how to fly this airplane. That was a rudder airplane. Who flies with rudders today?
2: I know. I definitely, (laughs) I don't think did other than maybe T-37s going through spin training.
4: You know, coordinated flight was something that we learned in training, Yeah, but modern airplanes are not rudder airplanes. The 100 was a
2: rudder airplane. And I think definitely, obviously, as you move into the jet age, the the rudder becomes less and less of a factor, especially these days with digital flight controls and and flight computers and that kind of thing. So it's definitely a callback to a simpler time of flying, but also potentially a more dangerous type of flying as well.
4: There were things that were added. Dampers. We had a autopilot in the airplane, but it never worked for me. It was, as a matter of fact, it was disconnected, Okay, but we did have pitch and roll dampers. And so that did help with some of the issues that were, uh, early on. Again, it's learning the characteristics of an airplane in an era that was uh, still pretty new.
2: You talked about that one year and the high rate of accidents and whatnot. Was that throughout the lifespan of the aircraft? Was that a pretty common thing to have happen? Was that, would you say like the predominance of issues with it in terms of safety?
4: Lost a lot of airplanes. There were 2,292 airplanes built. During its operational life, we lost 889 of those airplanes. That's a lot of airplanes. That's and 889 a lot. airplanes and, and 324 pilots.
2: One is too many, but that's that's yeah. obviously a very distinctly large number. Yep. Relative to all the other ones that are out. In there.
4: Vietnam, we lost 242 Sabres. 186 of them were shot down. The rest of them were to uh, silly things, stupid things. Yeah. My roommate in Vietnam hit a tree. Oh, no. Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, those kind of things. He brought the airplane back with, with parts of the tree still in with the some wing. some branches
2: and extra.
4: <laughs> there was a story about an F-100 pilot doing a run over a ship out in the water and hit the water. I'll tell you, coming home, it was an exhilarating time after a mission. You'd just been shot at and hit yeah. or missed, but you were coming home and you, you like to flash it. And so the Navy guys got a lot of F-100s showing their skin. Yeah, It was a different flying time than we experienced today in the, in, and i'd say we were a bit loose
2: i can tell you that there's some rules that are written these <laughs> days that specifically forbid those types of actions on any sort of mission frankly but specifically after combat missions definitely well let's fast forward then from the d model to the f and talk about the wild weasel mission were you familiar at all I, with that i, I never flew any of the weasel missions and,
4: and they were pretty much over when i got to vietnam the Misties were fully active, but the 100 as a weasel was pretty well done, as far as I know, because I didn't get involved with it and didn't know much about it.
2: That's fair. Yeah, that's fair. Any nuclear capability for you guys at that point?
4: Yeah, it uh, was fully nuclear. It sat nuclear alert in Europe, and it had a number of uh, years was in that, and we trained in that role. We, uh, the labs maneuver, you familiar with that one?
2: Is that the low altitude uh, it's toss? It's a toss. Yep. You
4: just come in high speed at low altitude, pull the nose up. And get to a release altitude, let it go and fly right back the way, and, and off that bomb and goes. Run and, away, dive and, to the and deck, you and get, you get out of dodge. Yeah, yeah. that's
2: right. Hide behind some mountains, hopefully, or, or something. <laughs> I've seen the targets. I've never practiced it in an F sixteen, and we've talked about it on the show before about you know the switches in there and it's capable of doing it. It's just we never trained to it anymore. So, was that something you trained to? We did it once, I think, in training just to try it. Yeah. I've done it a lot in the
4: 111, but the 100, it was there, and it was part of the mission platform for uh, Europe, for sure. Yeah. But uh, we didn't train in it.
2: That's fair. I don't know how people could do that. I mean, it sounds fun to do the maneuver, but the, the actual delivery and everything, <laughs> that's, that's a whole, whole other level of uh... – discussion i guess well it's
4: pretty precise you had to hold a a specific angle of attack and you had to hold that angle of attack had to get your keep yours We had to be up obviously when you started that thing and you had to keep that thing going exactly the right time and for the release and when you hit your release altitude pickle that off and
2: run away bravely as (laughs) we like to say let's see we covered some missiles we covered the bombs did you guys do any like leaflet missions or anything of that nature
4: we did christmas cards this is interesting i had a lady that came into the airplane here in the museum after we were getting ready to put it on display. And and on the front of the airplane, a big orange letter says Kong Killer. Okay. That was the name of the airplane uh, when I got it, and we made it bigger when we had it repainted. Very good. And she was uncomfortable with the name Kong Killer. She said, you know, don't you think that that shouldn't be on there in the museum? Isn't that offensive to children and so forth? I said, ma'am, what did you think we dropped out of here, Hallmark cards? And she walked away. But in fact, we did drop Hallmark cards. Uh, we'd load the Speedbrake Bay with the cards, and each one of the, the wings or the squadrons had responsibility for a certain uh, army outpost somewhere up on a mountaintop. And, and they were the ones that we'd always fly over and waggle our wings and say hello when we could. But at Christmas time, we'd load the thing up with. Christmas cards and go over there and drop the Christmas cards on the uh, the outposts up there. So that was the only thing we ever dropped that was
2: tight. That's a pretty cool story. <laughs> I did not know that that was a thing. That's great. That's uh, yeah, a we, little boost of morale out there.
4: It was. Uh, w- one uh, particular uh, time, this is uh, the Christmas of 68, they'd put up some... New antennas that we weren't familiar with. Oh. (laughs) A couple of us almost bought it uh, with antennas that were a little (laughs) higher than we thought they were.
2: (laughs) But we got the cards delivered. Didn't chum the maps for you. Uh, No. Well, let's – you know, we've covered obviously the U.S. flew the F-100. Any other countries that you know of? uh...
4: You know, Denmark, I think France – Turkey, Taiwan, those guys all flew it Okay. to different uh, levels of capability, I'm sure. But it was part of the NATO countries.
2: Did you ever fly with them, with uh, any of the other countries flying it or anything? No, I didn't. No.
4: I did have an experience when I was in Europe uh, yeah. many, many years later. I, I flew into a base in Turkey, Chile. The general officer met me at the airplane. He had flown a 100. Oh, no kidding. When we were talking about it, as we were walking back out to the airplane, I asked him, General, you're... English is so special. You do speak excellent English. Have you spent much time in America? And he said, I've never been to the United States, but I have been to Alabama. (laughs) (laughs) And and then he said, a joke. (laughs) So so at least I knew one Turkish guy that did fly the uh, (laughs) F-100. The Turks are extremely competent uh, military folks. That's
2: very good. Yeah. It uh, obviously flew in Vietnam, as we've discussed. How long a uh, career or lifespan did it have in operational service, do you know?
4: Well, it started in 1953 when we first started delivering airplanes, and I think its last flight was in 79 with the reserves or the guard.
2: That's right, yeah. As far as uh, you know, the specifics for you, what is the service ceiling of it, and then how high have you taken it?
4: They say 50,000 feet, and I've been at 50,000 feet in the airplane, so I, I haven't any higher than that. But it does have a ceiling of about 50,000. Now, if you're carrying munitions and that sort of the, you're not going to get Not there. a chance. Yeah. Coming back home on a nice starlit night.
2: Sure. After a successful mission or, or yeah. otherwise, yeah, for sure. Speed wise, what kind of speeds are we talking
4: well, about? Well, it obviously was supersonic, straight and level, which was its first big thing. But we flew it in combat 300, 400. Not too much. but When you're delivering weapons, you got parameters you got to meet. Definitely. And so, uh, air speeds were just part of the deal. We—I I don't think I ever bombed any higher than 400 knots, and that was different kind of weapons. Those aren't dive bomb weapons, you know. I'll share some experience with you about bombing. Definitely, just yeah. for the heck of it. As an F-16 guy, you got this. Gee whiz, you roll and then put the paper on the target, punch the button, and wait for the computer. to I now. mean,
2: it's maybe a little more complicated than <laughs> that, but, but well, yeah, generically speaking, yes.
4: But in the 100, you had the. Depending on which weapons you're carrying, you had to put in the mills of depression for the site.
3: Mm-hmm.
4: You had a release altitude and the dive angle, and you'd roll that thing in from whatever altitude you might be at. Let's say we're at 8,000 feet, then mm-hmm. we're over a heavily defended area. My approach to rolling in was to just roll it upside down. Pull it down, straight down, and get your dive angle in and roll it out. like That was the most effective way to get a good dive angle. Okay. So you got to set your dive angle up. So you're checking your dive angle. Have I got my right dive angle? Am I two degrees steep? You got to have it on the dive angle. As you're coming down the slope, you got to look at uh, your drift. Am I drifting the proper? I'm looking at my pipper because we're always going to have some drift generally. Uh, how about my airspeed? Is my airspeed locked on? Am I two knots fast? Am I five knots fast? Am I six knots slow? All that is going on up here. Yes. And all that's got to come together where you get your dive angle, your airspeed, pipper on the target at one moment in time as you pass that altitude. Yeah. I marvel. That I even had the brain power to do all that, <laughs> because it was a continuous adjustment for air. OK, I'm a little steep, so what do I got to do? Or I'm a little hot. And all of those things entered into whether you got a good bomb or not. And if I'm not going to put a good bomb on it, then why the hell am I here? Absolutely. So it was a continuous effort of calculation.
2: I will say, you know, looking back, we did have the ability to, to go manual bombing, as we would call it, to press reticles and setting the mills in there and everything else to do what you were basically forced to do as the only option for dropping bombs minus just hopefully just point at a thing and and dropping the bomb. But there is something to be said for the simplicity of what you're talking about as to what we had to look through through a HUD, where we did have a lot of the computer doing the compensating for us in terms of winds and the drift, like you talked about. There's always ways to make the simplest things in the world more complicated (laughs) with the guise of making it more simple. So I can fully appreciate how much uh, of a challenge that is. And and I was never shot at while I was doing any of this stuff. It was all in training. You had the disadvantage of people purposely trying to not let you do that, or at least not let you do it as well as, uh, as you would have liked. So right into that, were you ever shot at or, or did you have any of that type of experience?
4: Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was shot at and hit and shot at a lot and missed. The most dangerous weapon, I think, for us anywhere in South Vietnam was small arms. Definitely. You know, and quad-mounted fifty-caliber guns were brutal. I took a couple of rounds in the tail one time, and a couple of rounds in a drop tank. Very good. That's the most serious thing I had. And it was fifty-cal type stuff. Mm-hmm. The stuff that was also extremely dangerous up north was twenty-seven, thirty-seven millimeter, eighty millimeters. Uh, but those guns, you could see it coming.
2: The flak cannon kind no, of No, no, yeah, style? It, it
4: was like a red golf ball. Okay. You could see it leave the ground and as it's coming up it's going very slow because it's coming straight at you and so you don't see a whole lot of acceleration until it goes by <laughs> and it goes by supersonic you know sure. and hopefully above your head or b- well below you yeah it was the small arms kind of stuff again quad 50 now they had tracer rounds and, mm-hmm. and especially up in Laos so you could see that stuff coming but when they fired, I remember one time pulling off a target and I pull hard left turn and all of a sudden look up and I can see nothing but tracer rounds going by. Oh, wow. A tracer round, every seventh round is a tracer round.
2: So you're not seeing them so, all. <laughs> so you're not seeing them all.
4: You know, if I hadn't just decided, okay, it's got to be this way, then I'd have flown right into it. It's pretty hectic stuff, and it's interesting about combat in those terms. When you're there, there's no nervousness. There's no worry. I mean, I'm never worried about getting hit. All I'm worried about is getting the doggone bombs on the target. Yeah. And if you're going after guns, and because of the way the guns operated, we always flew in a flight of four up there in Laos. And, and Mugea Pass was the heart of it all. It went into a, into a little town called Japone. Japone looked like the moon. It would, had been bombed so much. Oh, wow. but, but in the pass, and the guns would be mounted up along uh, the Karsten and the mountainsides and so forth. Through the
2: ridges and the higher yeah, points. Yeah, they were yeah. all up there.
4: And so they uh not easy to get. We would obviously operate in a wheel. We try to set up on these missions, if we were going after guns, to set up on a mission so they had multiple different kind of weapons aboard. Lead would usually carry slick 750s because he was going to roll in first. And he was going after the target that we were trying to get to. Okay. And if the gunners were getting ready to shoot, they weren't going to shoot him. They were going to sight on him. And number two was the next guy coming down, and they were going to experiment on him. And so number three was loaded with the kind of weapons we liked, like CBU or rockets or whatever it took to go after guns. It was a dance in the sky. You could see, like, flashbulbs going off all day, all over the place. And uh, that was small arms, generally, or obviously. But you never got nervous about that. Well, they're shooting again kind of thing, you know. Only going home when you thought, well, that was...
3: <laughs> that was interesting. <laughs>
4: that was a little tougher than I thought, you know. Sure. Those are the kind of instances that make life uh, exciting. And, of course, there were some missions where you did bunt bomb. You know, are you familiar with bunt bomb?
2: I'm just saying you just pushed a little bit forward on the stick, yeah, unload the G. You, and...
4: you get very low. You're coming in low because you're under the weather, generally. Okay. You've got your reticle depressed, and as you fly and it hit a certain point, you push over, nose that thing over, and then you release the bomb and then fly out of it. Okay. That's low-altitude bombing, and that was uh, – tough. That was in not a good area for ground fire and so forth. So you didn't do that unless you actually had to. And we never did that in Laos. The guns and so forth up there were too much, too many.
2: This is very well defended.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly.
2: What was your normal uh, ingress, egress altitude for your missions? Below 15,000, somewhere in that Yeah, range? below 15,000. Yeah predominantly like low, low altitude, or would you say that medium, ten to 15,000?
4: going into Laos, uh, always above ten, fifteen thousand 15,000 feet. Yeah. Yeah. You wanted to stay up there until you got, uh, made it up with your FAC. Okay. And he gave you, uh, we had different altitudes that we wanted to fly at. And we always knew pretty much what the big guns would do as far as uh, what altitudes they were most going to be effective at and so forth. So we tried to avoid those altitudes as much as possible. and, And we kept moving. I remember one of the guys I flew with, I'd been there about seven months and he had just come over. This is on a strafe run. He was a hardened old major. He knew everything about flying and, and I saw him rolling in on a target and he you know, rolled that airplane out, flattened it out, he used the power back and I could just see him tracking like that. You don't shoot like that. Man. <laughs> <laughs> you don't survive by just rolling out and tracking Taking your time. That's right. Yeah. But, so it was uh always moving, always keeping out of trouble, but never had any concerns about the mission until you got out of there.
2: Switching from uh, air-to-ground to 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 air-to-air, did you have any air-to-air engagements that you were a part of at all?
4: Not in Vietnam at all. The the only time I did air-to-air was in training,
2: shooting on the dart. And you talked that was kind of an interesting experience. What was kind of your your experience? Well,
4: I found that I actually did pretty good on the dart until uh, one day I came in a little hot and found my closure rate was just way, way farther than it should have been. The dart was good exercise, good training, but it didn't really teach you air-to-air. It taught you how to lock on and shoot. But as far as maneuver and so forth, there was yeah. That's a lot of that. not
2: really the point of it. It's really more just aiming, exactly. And making sure you understand how to do that exactly. Uh, was that at Luke?
4: That's a Luke, yeah. Yeah,
2: I've seen the remnants of your uh, successes out there in the <laughs> training ranges. If you, <laughs> yeah. if anybody's interested in going and taking a drive through the desert for, I don't know how many miles, but it's definitely a long way out there. There's uh, there's lots of silver in. Metal pieces of remnants of dart.
4: Yeah, uh, you wanted to hit there. the dart, but you didn't want to shoot it off. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, yeah,
2: you'd ruin it for everybody else. I know my dad flew A sixes in the Navy, and he would. They would talk about uh, the missions where they'd go, and obviously they don't have any forward firing guns on that aircraft. But talking about in training and whatnot, they'd shoot the dart off, and then that's the only dart they had. So everybody gets to go home, and everybody's upset at you. You're buying the beer or something. <laughs> well, very good. So you talked about obviously being uh, very experienced in the aircraft and the number of combat missions you had. Looking back at your time in the aircraft, what are some of the things that you wish, hey, you know, maybe we could fix this here. If you had an unlimited pot of money, what would you have said would have been a nice thing to add to?
4: That's an interesting question because I don't have a single thing that I didn't love about that airplane. I loved its characteristics. I knew what it would do, and I was honorable to it. Maybe a little bit more power. Sure, But, you know, when you let that afterburner on the ground, it was just dumping raw fuel back in that thing, and, and off you'd go. When you were fully loaded, it took a lot of runway to get it up. So okay. you could say, gee whiz, that G57. But it was of the time. That's what it had. So uh, I don't think there's anything I would have changed. Maybe carry more ammo. You know, 200 rounds in the gun is not a lot. When I look at the Gatling gun and what it can do and so forth, you know, unbelievable advancements and such.
2: Definitely. Skipping back a little bit, did it have a radar warning receiver of any type It did. Type on it had, there? had Ross gear. And it felt pretty comfortable with it its uh, accuracy?
4: Yeah. I, you know, we didn't get a lot. I wasn't flying over the north. We flew into the north sometimes. Okay. Maybe we weren't supposed to, but it was just along the border near the Ho Chi Minh Trail and I so see. forth. But I think it was good. Uh, <laughs> I, I never had anybody shooting at me from with it, so I, I said, okay, I'll take it. Not
2: that you're aware <laughs> of anyway. Very good. All right. Ignorance is bliss yeah, at, exactly. at points, right? All right. Very good. What was your favorite feature then, I guess, going from the, the negative to the positive? What was the thing you liked the most about it?
4: I liked the way it looked. It was a just sexy looking a, airplane. It was just for its time, it was a sexy looking airplane. When I was young years ago, <laughs> I think I was about eight years old. And there was a uh, fella that was a captain in the Air Force. His name was Dick Mitchell. And Dick Mitchell was a skier. He was an Olympic skier, as a matter of fact. And he was also a captain in the Air Force. And in Utah, skiing is everything. Uh, I kind of tracked him and because I was young, but he, f- he was a flyer and so forth. I was skiing one day in our local ski area up above Ogden, Utah, and, and the ski lift runs along the top of a ridge, and the ski area is down below. And I saw an F-100 circling around out there, and I said, you know, was a fighter, I couldn't tell at the time. And I watched him come around, watched him come around, and all of a sudden he got really low and started flying right up the hill. And I was in the chairlift looking down at him, and I could see the pilot as he roared by. And I thought, that's what I want to do. You know, that's, that's the only thing I want to do. And that pretty much set the stage for my uh, joining the Air Force and flying airplanes. And I would have been devastated if I didn't get the f one
2: hundred. Was the Air Force always your goal, or did you ever consider the Navy or Marines, I guess? You know,
4: I, I applied to both programs. I applied to the Navy program and the Air Force program just because it was, it was a time when uh, my number was not one that would probably come up real quickly in my draft number. Yeah. But I was just graduated from college, and I said, you know, I'm going to Vietnam. If I'm going to go, I want to go flying. And and so I applied to the Navy and the Air Force. The Navy balked a little bit playing football in high school. I had a injured back. So the Navy wanted to ask a question about that. The Air Force didn't care.
2: That seems like a trend with anybody we've spoken to about getting into one or the other services. It's kind of whichever one's going to take me first in a way. Yeah, so that, That's that, the way it was. That makes sense. A lot of people, at least these days, say the Air Force has you know better golf courses and that kind of thing. So I can appreciate it. Yeah, they, I from. think they
4: do. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, very good. So now with all of your flight experience, specifically in the F-100, and obviously you've got some F-111 stories after that, within the F-100 timeframe, do you have any stories that you know, you think are worthy of our listeners to hear that are extremely harrowing or exciting or anything that just you look back on with fond memory or terrified memory, whichever way you want to take it? I'll
4: tell you one story. We were uh, in Laos. Uh, We had finished bombing. And the FAC was taking some pretty heavy fire from the North Vietnamese side of the border. And so uh, we said, well, we're going to take care of that. And so instead of going in there, we had no ordinance left. We had all, all of our guns were full. So we just would roll in about where we thought they were, and just hose, just let it go, fill the air with bullets. And as I'm pulling off the target, as I always do, check my instruments and so forth, and all of a sudden look down and my oil pressure has gone to zero. Oh, no. And I am in on the border of North Vietnam and Laos, and I ain't got nowhere to go, and my <laughs> oil pressure is now down to zero, and that's the, when the sweat began. Definitely. And I pull the airplane up as much as I could. I hit the afterburner because it didn't matter, and off we're going, you know. And I told the rest of the guys, said, hey, I'm heading out of here. I'm going toward Thailand, I think. And, uh, <laughs> you know, stick with me. I don't know whether we're going to make it or not. And number three was a friend of mine. He said, well, don't bail out. Don't bail out. And I said, well, I'm going to stick with it as long as can. he can. well, I want to get back there and take pictures. <laughs> and when he said that, I almost laughed. You know, was, And all of a sudden, the heat was gone take a picture. Well, he must not think this is very serious. <laughs> and luckily it was just a cannon plug that had come loose. And uh, it so was just the,
2: the gauge was disconnected. I, I had
4: oil pressure and everything, didn't know it. Uh, and so into Laos, we went and landed and, uh, and had a great night that night at a party. But uh, <laughs> that was one of the time when I was really nervous for a little while.
2: Yeah, it's definitely a scary one. I, because I can... when you're
4: over Laos, if you can eject, their safe areas, quote, safe areas. And, and sure. of course, we were just trying to get back to Thailand. But it's a very unfriendly environment in Laos. In North Vietnam, they'd take you prisoner. Definitely. In Laos, they did It was kind of scary. And, and that's only the scary part, I think, of my tour. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I'd say after, uh, what, 227 combat missions, that's pretty good if that's kind of the scariest moment that you've uh, kind of experienced. Well, like I, I said,
4: you were never scared in the middle of the fight. It never occurred to you that you might get killed. It just didn't.
2: How much did you think about it in between or leading up to a mission at all?
4: Not at all. Not at all? No. It was always going home when all of a sudden you said, you know, that was tough today. That was close. Yeah. You think back to a couple of your friends that didn't make it home and why they didn't. And uh, I had a good friend that went down at night. It was in Laos. He was rolling on the target. and Fact said, great hit, too. Well, that was two. Oh, no. Two hit the ground. Yeah. And nobody knows. Did he take ground fire? Did he just lose awareness? Uh, what happened? So you think back on those things, I guess, and losing. And we lost more than a few. It's one of those things that wears on you, maybe at night sometime, but never in the saddle. When you're in the cockpit, it's business as
2: usual. Good thing about the training—they kind of take away all the rest of the, the thought, if you will, but uh, focus on the missions. That's great. Well, switching gears, talking about your aircraft that's sitting here in the museum today, and we'll go take a look at that here in a little bit, but. What was kind of the genesis of that story and how that aircraft ended up getting here? As you know, you grow a
4: great affinity for your special airplane. Definitely. If it's got your name on it, it's special. For sure. uh, And that airplane, it brought me home when maybe it shouldn't have. I mean, I will admit right here, I I abused it. Just another quick story. Uh, one of the big problem with the dog gun engine was compressor stalls. Okay. And if you get that thing uh, slow, get that nose up, interfere with the flow in that intake, all of a sudden those blades start to fail or stall, and that and you're shooting fire out of both ends. Mm-hmm. It kicks your feet off the rotor pedals and up against the dog gun shield down there, and you injure your legs. it feels, it feels like anyway. <laughs> I, uh, I had one of those instances in Vietnam where I'm low, I'm slow, and all of a sudden it starts compressor stalling, and bam, 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 you know. Yeah. By Don, lower the nose a little bit, get her going, and bring her home. And so it, it brought me home. I don't have an exact number of missions I flew in it because we didn't keep track fully of the first part of the time I was over there, but I am figured about 180 missions in that airplane for the right. uh, total of 227 because looking at my uh, flight record, when we started keeping track of tail numbers, I kind of judged that about to be that. So anyway, that was my, my airplane. Yeah. And when I left Vietnam, I had to leave my crew chief and the airplane there and, and went home and kind of forgot about it. And during the course of uh, while I was here at Robbins, I think. No, actually, it was a little bit before that. But anyway, I, I found a, an artist who had done a really neat picture of F-100s in Vietnam named Mark Carvan. I use his name because I'd love people to look at his stuff. He does magnificent stuff on airplanes, uh, ships, cars. Uh, I mean, he's a magnificent artist. And so I wanted him to paint a picture of my airplane in Vietnam with my name, my tail number, and stuff. I had Pennzoil stickers on my airplane. <laughs> my brother was a Pennzoil salesman, so I put Penn's oil stickers on it, and it was pretty cool. But anyway, I wanted a painting of that airplane. And so I contacted him, and if he could take that painting already done and kind of convert that into my tail number, my name, my paint scheme, and so forth. And he said, sure. So he did it. When I got it, I was just thrilled. And he he sent me a letter, and he said, do you have any idea what happened to that airplane? And I said, no idea at all. And he said, well, I, I have a friend who keeps track of all that, and let me get you in touch with him. Oh, cool. So very quickly, I found out the airplane is at Massachusetts, Otis Air Force Base, up on a post, and it had been there for over 20 years. No kidding. And luckily, I was in a position down here I could make something happen. (laughs) I talked to the museum and said, we already had a a model here, an F-100 here, but it was a C model and had been in combat. And one of the things the museum tries to do is use combat airplanes that are actually flown in combat as their example. So... Luckily, I was able to get them uh, to go up there and take a look at it and make sure that the data plates were correct. I mean, I wouldn't want to, just because it had a tail number on it, didn't mean, necessarily mean that it was the So extra. numbers
2: matching, kind of like yeah, I wanted, old, uh, vintage I wanted, cars, that kind I of thing. I wanted
4: the numbers to match. Yeah. And yeah, it's the airplane. And interestingly enough, when the airplane was manufactured in California, its first landing place was Robbins Air Force Base. No kidding. It came out of the plant, landed here to go through some upgrades before it went to Europe. So uh, I said, okay, let's bring it home. So uh, we went up there. I sent a crew, brought it back, and when that airplane came into the yard, it was amazing. <laughs> just amazing. Now, of course, it was wings were on the sides, and they were taken apart and everything. But yeah. It just was uh, total, my goodness, it, this is something big. Definitely. And uh, we unloaded it, gutted it in, and put it in a hangar and so forth, and, and then it sat. We just didn't have the skills and so forth and the manpower. Finally, I got a, a master sergeant volunteer who said, I'll take this on. So he and I, he spent many more hours than I did, but I worked for almost seven years on that airplane, once we got it here, to put it back into shape. And uh, it's now sitting on the floor. That's a beautiful airplane. One of the things that we did, I've talked about this before, but in, we didn't just do it to make it look good from the outside. It was uh, totally rebuilt from the inside out. It's got everything in there that's supposed to be there. Some of the things that couldn't be connected are not connected once you take the wings off and so forth and then sure. replace them. It, uh, it takes a while to get everything back where it does. But the airplane is fully restored as much as possible from the inside out. And I spent, I would say, thousands of hours, but in my garage painting small pieces. Yeah. I just had a great affinity to that airplane, had to be perfect as much as we could for sure and put it in place so it came back from a long time out in the cold in Massachusetts and now it's back at Water Robbins
2: that's an amazing story so your name obviously is going to be on the airplane is your original crew chief's name also absolutely. on there absolutely yep that's amazing and then did you guys also have additional crew chiefs or is it just the one no
4: just the one uh, now one of the guys that flew the airplane right after I did he gave me a call and said hey I hear you're bringing the airplane and I said yeah and he said any chance of getting my name on the side and I said, then not a chance in the world. <laughs> <laughs> but interestingly enough, the crew chief, when we were in Vietnam, he asked if it was possible if he put his wife's name on the other side of the airplane. You don't say no to your crew chief. So. That's fair. He had it put on there while we were there, and, and I've never taken a picture of that side of the airplane, but that's the way it was. That's fine. I couldn't say no, and so he had it. And it wasn't a big
2: We'll go check it out here in a little bit. We'll look for somebody that maybe came across later and wrote their name on uh, the pilot side in Sharpie or something, see if they <laughs> yeah. graffitied it up there. That's an amazing story. I'm so glad that was able to uh, take place, and I can see it here as we sit here. There's a little bit of emotion behind that story and and be able to bring it to its rightful home. Moving forward, it's obviously been a bit of time since you've flown the aircraft and since the aircraft has left active service. Are there any places listeners could go and see this aircraft in movies or Beyond the museums?
4: You know, it's interesting. I don't think there was any movie that I can remember recall where the airframe, the F-100, was a part of the movie. Okay. Except for uh, the saber dance. The Hunters, I'm not sure if you're familiar with The Hunters, but it was a Korea War era F-86 magnificent movie with great shots of the F-86 flying and so forth. Sure. One of the parts of the movie was an airplane came in and crashed, and they used the F-100 Sabre Dance as the airplane crashing. So they had an F-100 crashing in an F-86 movie. (laughs) They also had a similar problem. They used it in another movie called, I think it might have been Red Flag, where they just used that footage as an F-15 crashing. Oh. But those are the only things I can think of where the F-100 was the focus point of The focus point. Yeah.
2: Yeah, I can't recall any movies that... The F-100 has been the focus point, like you said. I know there have been a few other ones where it's kind of had a a splash here and there. I think it was in We Were Soldiers, the Mel Gibson uh, film. When they were calling the bomb strikes in for the the napalm strikes in, I guess, for uh, a little bit of footage there. Well, that's good stuff. I love all this kind of stuff. And starting the the wrap-up, what's been your interaction with the museum here, the Museum of Aviation at Robbins, since you— Well,
4: I'll tell you, the museum is a a magnificent place. And when I got here in 97 as the commander— The very first thing that they do is usher the museum and and explain how what a critical and important place it is. And it really is, because if we lose our history, if we don't allow our history to provide uh, focus on the future, we're lost as a country, and so not preserving this is really important, I think. And so the museum has become a a very, very focal point for me ever since I was here the very first time. We had here uh, for a long time a really focused workforce and still that way but focused on, on preserving the airframes and so forth i think that what i've found is that the community also is a very supportive of the museum and, and we had for a while general bob scott you remember bob scott i don't know uh, who wrote god is my co-pilot yep general scott was here he was born in macon after his wife had passed away he came back to warner robbins to live and he came to the museum every day. Bob Scott was just a magnificent guy who commanded the Flying Tigers and who has so many stories. I loved his stories. He is was the core of the museum for a long time because he had such a presence here.
3: Definitely.
4: So the museum continues to be a very focal point for the Air Force as far as the base and the community. I think keeping it alive is vital, and we need to grow. It's always a challenge because there's not a funding source. The military doesn't fund all this very well.
2: Yeah. Speaking with Arthur, who's the curator of the museum, before we started the interview, he was saying typically there's about a 600,000-person visitorship that comes in on a yearly basis. And obviously with COVID and and everything that that's kind of done to change how we, as a society, world, populace, whatever you want to call it, operate, uh, that's definitely taken some damage and hits and stuff. And I'm going to speak with Aaron, another member of the staff here, after we get done recording with you, sir, but kind of hopefully do what we can to provide them a little bit of support and advertisement that way to get right. more visitorship as much as possible, and then other ways to volunteer or donate so that we can keep this history alive. Because uh, like you said, it is a vital part of, of our society and our legacy, making sure that we learn from the past and you know advance continuing that way.
4: Let me tell you just one story Definitely. about General Scott and the museum. When I was a commander here, I uh, entertained some uh, Chinese communist air force generals Mm -hmm. that were here in the united states to go around and and look at the way we maintained and sustained airplanes and so these were very i I say old they were probably in their 60s maybe 70s maybe they were older than that again because they they were showing their age but anyway
2: well experienced they they were
4: experienced and and there was four of them that were here to just tour the base and so uh, one of the things i asked was uh why don't we hold a reception for them at the Museum of Aviation and, and let them come over and, and just kind of see the museum. And at the last minute, I thought, you know, I, I invite General Scott. And so before General Scott showed up, I was standing there with these old communist generals, <laughs> stiff as board, not drinking anything, and trying to discuss or talk, and it's it, next to impossible. Sure. But we were trying to do our best. And so as General Scott walked in the room, I, through the interpreter, had him explain to them who he was, that he flew with the Chinese flying tigers in China at the time of World War II. And these guys just all of a sudden opened up. Their faces changed. They went over and they hugged the general, (laughs) and they started drinking. Oh, wow. So the reaction that I saw between this guy who fought in World War II and these old generals who were part of the Chinese effort as well and fought the Japanese, all the walls came down. And the rest of the night was a thrill to see here in the museum and the Chinese got stoned. <laughs> but they had a great time.
2: That's great. So That's the museum
4: great. has its ways of, uh, of helping in many other facets as well.
2: That's really good. Yeah. Now, I fully appreciate the history and the heritage that, you know, these types of organizations provide and learning lessons and opportunities for the younger generations. I say that as if I'm, you know, a thousand years old, but I'm now realizing that age is a constantly increasing thing. And and trying to instill the lessons of the past through visual history and a little more tactile interaction as opposed to just a computer, or a TV screen is is definitely an important piece. And just from driving in and parking, you've got a B one. You've got all these amazing aircraft. Instant you walk in the door right there in your face, it is it's a hugely uh, impressive experience and I can't wait to see the rest of it here shortly. Well sir, I definitely want to be respectful of your time. We've been talking for a little bit over an hour here, but I have appreciated every second and the time that it took to make this happen. We've, you know, been at this for a couple of months trying to get this all squared away and and COVID and and the holidays and, and everything else. But I appreciate everything you've had to share with us today. And all the amazing things that I was able to take away from this, and I know the listeners are going to be thrilled to hear about the F-100 and, and all the things that you've said. Is there anything else that we may have missed or anything else that you want to impress upon the listeners about the aircraft before we uh, head out the door?
4: I don't think so, but I think we have had a great time here. I've appreciated and enjoyed our time together. I think that anybody who uh, who has a, a love for a prospective aspect of the military, but airplanes specifically, let that dream take hold and let your kids dream My dad was a pilot in World War II, a civilian pilot, as a trainer. He kind of fostered that dream. But uh, I think that as I look at now our Air Force today, and I I was watching a movie the other day about women fighter pilots. Mm -hmm. These young ladies who dreamed... And that's what's so fantastic about our military is, is it can take dreams and make them reality and make us better. Definitely. And I think that's where we are today. Absolutely. Uh, I think our leadership is focusing on making us better in all the right ways. Mm-hmm. We've been through some tough times. We're going to go through more tough times. Budgets are always going to be a problem. Always. Uh, spare parts are always going to be a problem. <laughs> always. It's just one of those things that's alive. But uh, this has been a fun time for me, and I appreciate the opportunity.
2: Well, thank you very much, sir. I do appreciate that again, and. The last question that we'd like to ask our guests is uh, a call sign. Do you have one? I didn't see one in the bio, but do you have one? And uh, if it's uh, appropriate for uh, public consumption, what might that be? Call signs, uh,
4: when I was in Vietnam, we didn't have individual call signs. We had nicknames. Okay. I mean, you know, if a guy's last name was Rhodes, he was always going to be dusty or muddy or something like that. Sure. But we really didn't have individual call signs that I was familiar with. And the first call sign I ever was tagged with was Tiger 1. And that was when I was the commander of a, of a flying squadron, and it was sure. the Tiger Squadron. And then when I was a commander at Cannon Air Force Base, I was Cannon 1. So those are the only times I've ever really had a nickname or a call sign, which we didn't ever use sure. uh, in the air. Some services, I, well, all the services, certainly Air Force and the Navy, a lot of different nicknames floating around, but I didn't have anything that was attached to me.
2: No, that's <laughs> totally fair. Yeah, There are certain uh, pockets within each of the services that do it. and. Typically it looks like the air force fighter and the Navy fighter and Marine fighters communities are the ones that maybe are the the owners of that typically. And then it is a generational thing. I think it was probably more like the eighties and later that uh, it seems like that kind of became the norm. So no uh, harm, no foul, but, uh, <laughs> but sir, I do appreciate everything and we'll wrap this up here at this point. I want to thank you again for everything that you've uh, shared with us today and your uh, taking of the time to not only drive down here. I know you live a few hours away, just, To go over this amazing aircraft, the stories that you had to share with us and everything that you uh, did, your 34 years of uh, service to our nation. I do appreciate that. And I know the listeners can appreciate that from all the rest of the guests that we've had on there. It definitely shows with the passion and the stories and everything else that I can see in your face, but then uh, the words that you spoke today. So thank you again for all of that. For the listeners out there, I'm going to jump off here, go over to the aircraft with the general. And then I'll jump back online with Aaron from here at the museum. And we'll talk about a little bit more about the museum and uh, a few other things here. But uh, for me and uh, General Goddard, thank you again, sir. And we'll be uh, signing off at this point. Thanks so much.
0: Thanks, Boat. I appreciate it. All right. Nice job, Boat. General Goddard sounds like an amazing man. And uh, that's a great place to go do an interview. So nice work.
2: Hey, thanks so much. He is actually incredible. After we jumped out of the interview and went and got to take a look at the airplane and and all the stories he had, and he literally let me sit in the aircraft and was walking me through ground procedures and switches and symbology and stuff that he'd see in the aircraft. It was impressive. It was awesome.
0: Oh, I bet. Well, I had an amazing day there as well, way back when we did the B-17 episode with the gentleman there and had a chance to look around. Oh, yeah. Anyway, also, we have our Century Series hero, Bruce Gordon, here with us. Nice to have you back. Bruce, what did you think of the general?
1: I was amazed. He was a very good speaker. Okay. And I've got a couple of things he said that I'd like to emphasize. Uh, He said the F-100 had compressor stalls, Boy, he was right. And it also had (laughs) adverse yaw that would really water your eyes. I mean, it was sort of like you had a uh, trained lion there that was awfully powerful. (laughs) But uh, if you didn't treat him right, he'd bite your head off.
0: My goodness. Did you know the uh, general? Did you ever fly with him or in similar unit?
1: No, I didn't. I'm sorry. Okay. No problem. He would have been a great man to know. Yes.
0: Oh, gosh, yes. Well, he is still a great man to know, it sounds like, according to Boat. Absolutely. And uh, maybe I'll get a chance to meet him. But, yeah, you were saying at the end of 102, episode 102 that you flew over 100 missions in the Hun, as it's called, over Vietnam. What do you think of um, his characterization of the, uh, the the platform, but also the mission in, over Vietnam? Well, yeah, he was
1: great. He loved the F-100. And with your permission, I'm going to try to tell a one story fighter pilot story, ah. of how we used the F-100 in combat. Please do. That's why we keep bringing you back. Okay. So uh, we were scrambled out uh, in the middle of the night from Fan Rang, and we went out west toward where the Mekong runs into Laos. There was a cloud layer, not too bad a cloud layer. We went under the cloud layer and found a forward air controller, a fact. And he was using a starlight scope where he could see in very low light. It wasn't really infrared. He was looking at real vision. And he had found three, they were like World War II infantry landing craft. Like boats. Yeah, yeah. He described them where they were. And I had flares and napalm and my wingman had 500-pound bombs. So I went in first flying over it and taking caution note of the winds so that my flares would go in the right place. And I punched off some flares, and I turned around on downwind coming around. I could now see the three uh, uh, landing craft nosed into the shore. There were crews unloading supplies onto the shores, and I could see stacked supplies on the shore. Well, my wingman was down already on his dive bombing rain pass as the flares burst out. His first two bombs went off right by one of the landing craft and sank it right promptly. I was coming around, and I was setting up, and I set up napalm. I had uh, one napalm I had used on one wing. I had the flares, or the other, I had one napalm bomb. I planned that one and came in toward one of the barges and pickled off a napalm bomb at him. Well, you know, that's not very smart really. I found that out. Because if you miss your barge by just a little bit with a napalm bomb, it goes splash in the water. There was nothing there but a a little flare that I think was the phosphorus grenade that sets it off, just floating in the water. That was a complete miss for me. (laughs) So as I turned around, coming back over my Wingman was back in with two more of his bombs, and they were right on the shore, right in the middle of all those supplies. And I came in. This time, I selected my remaining two napalm, and I came in. This is all dark, but those flares are made it really good for us to see them. I could see the supplies, and I could see the barges. I came in and dropped my remaining two napalm. They hit among the supplies. The fireballs rolled over onto the barges. The fire actually hit one of the barges with such force that it moved it off the bank and it moved back out into the river covered with napalm and it was burning and the explosives were going on. They probably had ammunition on it, something like that. And the other one was just burning where it was. And so we came around and General Goddard talked about those 20 millimeter cannon and those 20 millimeter cannon, four 20 millimeter cannon, we had four guns, but those four guns put out as many bullets as your Gatling guns did. So it wasn't like you were putting out more bullets with a Gatling gun. We just used four guns to do it. And the four guns (laughs) were in a way good because they spread the bullets out a little bit, which is kind of nice when you're strafing. So we came in, and I just strafed that and poured out the shells on there. There's, As he talks about it, the high-explosive incendiary shells are just sparkling all over the place through the the supplies and into the barges, the remaining barge, and it was burning. I pulled off, and my wingman came in. He strafed, and I'll tell you, we had really done a job, and that is what the F-100 could do. Exactly what General Goddard said. Darn good plane for that kind of purpose.
0: My goodness. But I'm going to have to defer to you here because I don't think I can match that with anything I ever did in my career. <laughs>
2: Wow! Oh, not a chance. No. <laughs> you know, I was unfortunately uh, not able to, to drop anything in combat, but uh, definitely not able to do anything as amazing as that for sure, even in training.
0: Wow. Well, like I said, Bruce, wow. that's why we keep bringing you back. So, all right. So let's <laughs> touch on uh, a couple things that the general said, or maybe didn't say, it didn't really come up that for those who are familiar with Colonel John Boyd, uh, I think it was the F-100 where he began his notoriety, and I believe he was called 42nd Boyd because he could wax anyone, it was said, and he flew that thing like no other. Bruce, did you ever fly with Colonel Boyd, or did you know him maybe at some point? No, I didn't, but I flew fighter tactics in the F-106,
1: and I learned the rudder reversal, which I think is what he used in the F-100. It was a you are in this heavy turn, hard turn, with the bad guy behind you. You're pulling back on the stick about all that you can. It's not enough. The guy is still getting you. So you end up pulling back hard on the stick and feeding in top rudder. And the plane turns up into the air uh, stream and... The F-106 with its big delta wing would just plain stop, and this was great against F-4s because the F-4 couldn't possibly stop with you, and he went whistling past you, and you continued your roll, a rudder roll over, and you had lost all your airspeed, and this guy's going shooting ahead of you. Now, you don't have any airspeed, but at least you're behind him. I tried that in the F-100 with a guy behind me, and it worked. but holy cow, I nearly lost control of the airplane. The (laughs) F-100, General Goddard loves that thing. But as I said, that adverse yaw Mm -hmm. can bite your head off. (laughs) And I very nearly lost control of the airplane. So I think that Boyd was using something that resembled a rudder reversal that He could flip over, and you would go flopping past him, and then he'd be on your tail. And that's where he could get you in in 40 seconds. Mm. And I did it to somebody myself but I don't think I would ever want to try it again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, speaking of the rudder boat, in the interview you had agreed with the general that you don't use the rudder a whole lot, at least I think you might have said in the F-16, and of course you flew it a whole lot more than I did, yeah. and I don't remember using it very much, but we actually do use, you might be interested to know, the rudders quite a bit, because maybe partly due to the fact that we can get quite a bit slower and, and a higher AOA than the F-16, but also just the airframe as yeah. uh, we actually do use it a bit in the Hornet, you might be interested to know.
2: Yeah, definitely a good point, but yeah, for sure. We don't really touch it too much in the F-16 other than minor corrections here and there.
0: Okay. And then I have to ask the whole crowd here about manual bombing, because I was so glad that the F-18 was so much a better bomber, at least for me, because you had the automation. I was terrible at manual bombing in the TA-4J Skyhawk that I flew in flight school, but I'll start with you. Did you have to do manual bombing in what, the T-38 or something? And were you any good at it? Well.
2: Fortunately or unfortunately, depending on what direction you want to look at it from, I went from T thirty eight A's in pilot training, where we didn't do any bombing, you we were just, you know, focusing on basic flying, to T thirty eight C's, which is very similar to an F-16 setup when it comes to electronic HUD and a flight path marker and, oh. and those indications. And so we didn't really have manual bombing per se in the T thirty eight, and we have it as a backup mode in the F-16. But we had a lot more you know, digital type of stuff. So I never really practiced it in anything more than just theory, for lack of a better way to describe it.
0: Right. Well, we had a manual backup in the F-18 also, but we never used it. Bruce, the attacks you described earlier, were those all, I presume, manual bombing? You figured out what your altitude and dive angle was, and you dialed something into your reticle? Yes. And really,
1: it's fortunate when we ever hit anything. <laughs> The the idea that you're going to know the altitude above the target, first of all, because it's hilly country and it's in a range, it's all measured for you. So you don't know where this guy is on the hill uh, within, uh, you know, hundreds or thousands of feet, what his altitude is. They say what the wind is at the altitude. You don't know what the wind is at the altitude. There's nothing to tell you that. So you don't know what the wind is. You come in there, and you're supposed to put your pepper on this thing and get your dive angle and your airspeed right at the same time. Now, in the F-100, we found that the best thing to do to hit them was to get close. Hmm. And the F-100 could get close. And that was one of its greatest advantages. We got close, and we could hit something. (laughs)
0: Well, you hit things with 750-pound bombs now. Boat, I don't know about your experience, but in the Navy, we don't have those anymore. We have the Mark 82, 83, 84, which is 500,000, 2,000, but I've never seen a 750. Did you guys have that when you flew Vipers?
1: No,
2: I heard they existed, but we never had them.
0: Okay. Well, we used
1: them extensively in a 750-pound bomb. If you were close, you could feel the shockwave from it yourself. And always bothered me because there might
0: be shrapnel mixed with that. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, I would think so. Yeah. That's never good. You don't want to feel your own bombs if you can help it. All right. Well, golly, uh, Bo, you were there and uh, you had an amazing experience, but anything else in re-listening to the episode that we should cover today?
2: Yeah, no, I did re-listen to it and just brought a lot of memories back and all of them were great. The museum folks were amazing in helping set everything up and facilitating getting to meet General Garter, then letting me tour. The facility after the uh, interview was over, uh, giving us you know unfettered access to his aircraft, which, I th- in all honesty, it was absolutely insane to think that he was able to facilitate getting an aircraft off of a stick in front of a base into a museum, and in the meantime, rebuilding it almost from the ground up to make it museum quality was just absolutely incredible. Mm-hmm. And the stories and clearly the love that you can hear in his voice from the time that I had with him was just amazing. So I will always be grateful for that experience and and everything else that I've been able to do as as a part of the show.
0: Yeah. We appreciate it for sure. Cause that would have been a much farther trip for me to get out there and do that, but he was close to you. So that was good. All right, Bruce, what else do we need to know about the F-100? You got it pretty well there. (laughs) All right. Well, then, thank you both. That was a lot of fun. And I guess we can begin to wrap this up. Now, since we kicked off with the interview, we'll just go ahead and save any announcements and listener questions for next week. But we do want to thank our new Patreon strike lead, Maddie Alannon, and we have a new mission commander, Gabriel Lopez. As you know, the views expressed in this presentation are the personal views of the hosts and our guests and do not necessarily represent the position of the Department of Defense, or its components. So, Boat, great job with the interview, my friend. I do declare you are, as we would say in the military flying world, safe for solo on this whole podcasting thing. Good job.
2: Thank you so much. I'm excited to uh, (laughs) show the listeners what I've got and uh, what the future holds.
0: Excellent. All right. And, Bruce, always a pleasure having you on the show, sir. You care to join us on Valentine's Day for a look at the F-104 Starfighter? I'd love to. Excellent. Well, we'll see you in about 10 days. For all you listeners out there, thanks so much. Take care of yourselves. Be good to everyone. And we'll see you here next time on the Fighter
3: Pilot Podcast. So long. You've been listening to the Fighter Pilot Podcast, brought to you by BBR Productions. Got a question for the show? Email us at questions at fighterpilotpodcast.com or leave a message on our listener line at 877 mach 101 That's 877-622-4101. Be sure to follow us on your favorite social media platform and check out our website, fighterpilotpodcast.com. For exclusive content and to help support the show, check out our Patreon page. Thanks for listening.